Well, as we come to the final section of, uh, of Hebrews, we come to a chapter, uh, as we know now, where the preacher is focusing on this life lived uh, in the worship of God. Um, we know from beginning back in chapter 12, verse 28, really, that the preacher is highlighting the fact that because of Jesus and His work, we are now called to serve the Lord acceptably. So Jesus has purified us for this life of service to God. And in verse 12, or verse 28 of chapter 12, that service word is, is most easily translated by our English word liturgy, which speaks to that uh, form of service, whether it refers to our Sunday morning order of worship uh, or, as is in the case of Hebrews, liturgy refers to a, a whole life oriented around the priority of honoring God because uh, not only has He brought us salvation through Jesus Christ, but Christ is the one who's purified us now for this life of acceptable worship. He's opened up this way uh, so, so that in all we do, we can live for the honor and glory of God. And so in this section we're looking at this morning, we see the preacher has emphasized the whole life nature of our worship. He's already spoken of our liturgical life as it relates to the realm of loving others, as chapter 13 has begun. And then he's moved to speak about things like marriage and, and sexuality and money. And then last week we saw how imitating godly leaders uh, can, can be part of what forms us as uh, worshipers in the whole of our life, and, he, and he's bringing us through all of these categories simply as, as, a, as a sampling of the various aspects of our Christian life uh, through which we're to bring God glory. The whole of our life, it's not just a Sunday morning thing, the whole of our life is now to be lived as a worship event. And uh, now in our text today, the preacher adds another area of liturgical importance uh, for us to focus on as he speaks about how Living in a way that worships the Lord necessarily requires that we avoid strange teaching. We're called here to avoid strange teaching. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teaching, verse 9 says, which is really right at the center of what verses 8 to 16 are all about. Uh, because if our whole life is to be lived in this posture of trust and the sufficiency of Jesus, if our whole worship-filled life flows from what Jesus alone can accomplish, well, then the teaching we take in and hold on to, that instruction has to properly be centered on what's true about Jesus. After all, as Hebrews has made it very clear, without Jesus, our worship is unacceptable before God. He's the one who makes a way for us to come before God in a pleasing way. His, his perfect work is what ultimately has purified us for this liturgical life. So, so what we know and believe and speak about with regard to Jesus is a matter of vital importance. It's not a matter of, of mere philosophical preference or, or whatever it may be. No, what we believe about Jesus, the teaching that comes to us about Christ, is absolutely central to our life of worship through Christ. If we're really going to live this life that honors the Lord, we must not be uh, inundated by anything that distorts or dilutes or even denies the significance of Jesus and what He's done. And, and we know that false teaching is a fast way to undo our trust uh, in, in the only one who ultimately can bring us peace with God. That's something that can't be tolerated. And, and so to speak of false teaching, we know is no small thing in our Christian lives. And we know this just as we read through the Bible. Um, C.S. Lewis, he brings this up in, in the Screwtape Letters. And I've mentioned this before, and, may, and maybe you've read it. But I like to bring it up again because it's such a wonderful example 
Uh, you know the screw tape letters where there's the more senior demon screw tape, and he's advising his young uh, understudy demon on how to uh, do har- the hard work of, of derailing a new Christian believer's faith. So that's what's going on in the, in the, uh, in the narrative of the story. Older demon mentoring a younger demon on how to, how to mess up this new believer's uh, following of Jesus. And this is what he says at one point. He says, what we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity in the crisis, Christianity in the new psychology, Christianity in the new order, Christianity in faith healing, Christianity in vegetarianism, Christianity in spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with Christian coloring. Some fashion with Christian coloring. And in saying that, Lewis's point is, is to highlight the danger we face. We, we face. Taking the truth of Jesus and adding anything to it, this Christianity and, can be a very uh, diminishing and destructive aspect of, uh, of teaching that can come in and disrupt our Christian lives. In fact, in Colossians, th- this was the major concern that Paul had for the churches there. Uh, We studied Colossians a long time ago now, but some false teachers were coming into Colossae and saying, you know, of course you need Jesus. Yes, we'd never say you didn't need Jesus, but you need Christianity and. You need need Jesus plus. And so in Colossae, the false teachers were coming in and saying, you know, you need Jesus plus you need to add in some of these dietary restrictions. You need Jesus plus you need to add, uh, add in the celebration of these certain religious days. You need Jesus and all these extra man-made regulations if you're really going to be a full Christian. But, but of course, that's false teaching. We, we, we don't need Jesus plus. We need Jesus, the preeminent one, singularly. He is the one who's sufficient in and of himself, which is what Paul has to write to the Colossians and say. He speaks about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He's the big one. He's the one we need to focus on. And the first audience of Hebrews, they were actually facing something similar. In fact, it's very interesting to think of Hebrews and Colossians together because, because while the, writers of, or the, the audience of Hebrews, wasn't fa- they weren't facing Jesus plus kind of teaching, they were facing the other side of that same false teaching coin and that they were facing minus Jesus kind of teaching. So, so, so the false teaching that surfaced in the Hebrews congregation went something like, you can be okay with the God of the universe simply by what? Well, adhering to these old covenant regulations. That they're saying, in effect, you don't need this Jesus figure. Subtract Jesus from your, from your spiritual life. Just live according to the law of Moses. And in that, you'll have communion with God. You'll be at peace with Him. And as an added bonus, because Judaism is socially acceptable and this following Jesus business is getting your property confiscated and your friends put in prison, as an added bonus, when you go back from Jesus to Judaism, subtract Jesus from your life, you're going to have much less trouble culturally and socially speaking. And so we see how this has infiltrated the church there. The Colossians had the Jesus plus problem teaching in their church. Jesus plus you need to add this stuff. The Hebrews had the opposite side. But really the false teaching centers on the same thing. A a misrepresentation of the fullness of what's offered in Christ. You, You don't really need him. Just step back from him and your spiritual life can go on much more effectively. And so we put these things together as, as we're thinking about it, and we know that, that either way, Jesus plus or minus Jesus, either way, that false teaching means trouble. Because apart from a proper understanding and, and ultimately an allegiance to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from knowing Him, there is no way to be okay. As, as the preacher said throughout Hebrews, it, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God without Christ. 
And so the first century Christians faced temptations like this. And as we think about that context, in our own day, not much has really changed. We have Jesus plus stuff going on like the Colossians did. The contemporary application is a little bit different. But we have, for example, now we have Jesus plus political views situations happening in our North American congregations, don't we? We've got the trust in Jesus. And also, if you don't identify with this political group and this certain agenda, then how can you even be a Christian at all? Jesus plus kind of teaching is all around us in the church these days. And that's false teaching. And then minus Jesus stuff is there too. The, the, the flavor is a little different than what the, the Hebrews were facing, but it doesn't take much to notice that in plenty of churches, for example, uh, there's, there's an extraordinary concern with social reform in the now as the center for the world's hope. And that's an out-of-place hope. There, there is not ultimate hope apart from Jesus. You can't take Jesus out of the equation. You can't take the fact that His return is going to, what bring, is going to be what brings about final and climactic wholeness in a new created resurrected order. You can't separate any kind of future hope from that reality. And yet that kind of thing can go on. You don't really need Jesus. What we really need to focus on is social wholeness in the now, which of course we do need to focus on that. But we can't do that apart from recognizing the climactic need we have for Jesus to come and genuinely and finally and fully and flourishingly make all that wholeness uh, take place. And so, and so we have minus Jesus teaching happening. We have plus Jesus, uh, Jesus plus kind of teaching happening. It, it, it's, all, it's all around us. And it's, in a sense, it can be very appealing, culturally speaking. It's, it's very easy to fall into these kinds of things. And the preacher here is coming along and he's saying, if we're really going to lead lives of worship, if we're really going to have all aspects of our living formed in a way that brings honor to the God of our salvation, well, then we need to be able to discern strange teaching well, and we need to be able to spot it in order that we might rightly and swiftly reject it. We need to avoid it. And so it's to that end that the preacher brings the instruction of our verses today. He's helping us think about the liturgical life as it relates to avoiding strange teaching. Avoiding strange teaching. So uh, let's, let's look at this together. Verse 8, we'll start there. And we see, first of all, that avoiding strange teaching is going to require uh, that we're reminded of the unchanging Jesus. He reminds us of the unchanging Jesus, which is uh, obviously very, very clear in verse 8. Jesus Christ is what? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what the preacher says. Now, now there's a sense in which the one constant that marks our lives uh, is the constant that everything changes. We know that very well, especially these days. That reality seems even more pronounced than ever, doesn't it? P people who were always healthy have become sick. Plans uh, that we've made have had to be canceled. Expectations are, off, are altered. Uh, programs are adjusted or done away with. Especially right now, change seems to be about the only constant in our lives. And, and in a way, uh, that would have been an identifiable reality for the first audience of Hebrews as well because their days, while they weren't punctuated with, with sickness like our days are, uh, their days were punctuated by hardship in the form of persecution. So they had friends that were being put, into jail, uh, put in jail. That means that, that one night you'd be having dinner with them, the next day they're hauled off. 
uh, they had property seized. One day you're an owner, the next day that property has been confiscated. All those things we read about back in chapter 10. And, 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 so, and so whether it's the experience of the first audience of Hebrews we're thinking about, or whether it's our own experience we're considering, there's no doubt that change does seem to be the, the only thing that's actually consistent in our lives, especially these days. We feel that very profoundly. However, when it comes to knowing the Lord Jesus, what the preacher wants to make very clear is that He is the one who never changes. As the text says here, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this truth is extremely critical to all that the preacher is about to open up with regard to the kind of teaching that can come. So so we need to think about this for just a moment. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus never changes. So so what does that mean? Because we we read our Bibles... Jesus does change, right? He changed on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that incident? Peter, James, and John, they go up on the mountain Jesus with Jesus and they see Him, him change in front of Him. Literally, in Matthew 17, we read uh, that Jesus was metamorpho. He was met- metamorphosized. That's, that's change. He was changed. Matthew tells us how Jesus' face shone like the sun, clothes became as white as light. Change. Well, what about on the cross? Jesus changed. He went from a healthy mid-30s man to a man who hung dead. Changed from living to dead and then buried. That's changed. Or what about in the resurrection? Jesus' buried body was raised in glory to be His resurrected body on that first Easter. Jesus changed. So what does the preacher mean by saying Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? This is no small matter to work out. We have to think about this well if we're going to read our Bible accurately. And and actually, the answer to that question is here for us if we think clearly about the preacher's concern and agenda in Hebrews. Who is Jesus as identified in the book of Hebrews? What has the preacher to the Hebrews focused our attention on in terms of the significance of the personhood of Christ? Who is Jesus? Son. Jesus is the, we, we, we know very clearly, Jesus is the superior son. Jesus is the preeminent one. Jesus is the climactic revelation of God. He's the one who accomplished the totality of God's saving purposes with complete and climactic perfection. And so we think about this. How has Jesus been identified in, in the book of Hebrews? Well, he's identified as the superior one. That's who Jesus is. And here we're told he never changes. And the preacher's making the point that he never changes. Not, not, not in the fact that the transfiguration didn't occur or anything like that. No, he's making the point that Jesus never changes in his superior perfections as the supreme obtainer, sustainer, and final rewarder of salvation. Just think about this as it relates to Hebrews. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Think about how the preacher of Hebrews has worked out the identity of Christ as we've studied, the, studied through this book, up and down and, and bringing topics back in and then, and then fading off into other ones again. Think of all that he's brought in. And as we think about this, it becomes very clear the significance of Jesus' supremacy is, is being brought into focus here. Because we think yesterday, in the past, How are we going to think about the past about Jesus? Well, Jesus is the one who did what? He offered the superior sacrifice that cleansed us. That's the Jesus of yesterday. The one who offered the superior sacrifice who made us whole and clean before God. And then how about today? Presently. Well, what's true about Jesus today? Well, Jesus functions as our superior high priest, chapter 4, who brings us timely mercy and grace from the throne of God. That's today. Tomorrow. What's true about Jesus tomorrow in the future? Well, he's the one who secures an everlasting rest where our well-being is guaranteed in the eternal city of God's new creation. That's the Jesus of tomorrow. 
What does the preacher mean when he tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Well, he's telling us to think well on the character and accomplishments of Christ. All that's been unpacked in Hebrews remains constantly and unalterably true about Jesus. He's the superior sacrifice in the past. He's the superior priest in the present. He's the superior securer of eternity for the whole of our future. He is the unchanging superior son. And on the one hand, this is just a great, big, huge gospel truth that is an extraordinary comfort to us, just as it would have been to this first audience. If I may quote the country song, the only thing that stays the same is everything changes. Do you know that song? Things are constantly changing for us. We know this. The first audience knew this. The people who matter most to us change, sometimes in ways that are quite sorrowful. The culture that swirls around us, it's constantly changing. Jobs change. Families endure change. School's just starting. That's a huge change for kids and parents alike. Careers change. Finances change. Our lives are lived in constant change. But in all of that, here's one thing that never alters. The absolute superiority of Jesus, who is the preeminent Savior, preserver, and guarantor of heaven. He never changes. Same Jesus. So we think through this new job. All the things that are swirling around with the new job. Same unchanging Jesus. Past, past, past sacrifice intact. Present help assured in his priesthood. Future rest secured by what he's done. New job. Same unchanging Jesus. New family pressures. Same Jesus. New home, same Jesus. New relationship, same Jesus. No relationship, same Jesus. You're in the hospital, same Jesus. Mask mandate, same Jesus. No mask mandate, same Jesus. The new school, same Jesus. You lay down at night, same Jesus. You wake up for breakfast, same Jesus. You, you, you live your days out, same Jesus. You die, same Jesus. In a world where the only constant seems to be that everything is always changing, there is one who never changes and instead remains our preeminent Savior, preserver, and guarantor of heaven, same Jesus. Past sacrifice intact completely, the same yesterday. That cross accomplished what we needed to be made pure before God, that is unchanging. Present help assured, he is our high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us and brings us the timely grace we need to persevere in our days. That is unchanging. Future rest is secured. He is the Jesus of eternity that's coming, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess his lordship as he ushers in the reality of a new creation. Same Jesus, no change. He's the one we're called to trust in as the superior son. Which means... As we think about this, especially as it relates to the context here in Hebrews, not only is that a significant comfort for the people of, Hebrew, uh, of, the, of the letter who are enduring all kinds of stuff, not only is that a significant comfort for us, but that is also very critically attached to what we're going to think about with regard to teaching about Jesus. Because if what's true about Jesus is that He is the unchanging preeminent one, what does that say about the teaching that's going to come about Jesus? I was going to say that teaching is unchanging as well. Oh, applications may, may, may vary and, and need to be meted out in different ways, but the teaching about Jesus, the truth about Jesus, it also remains unchanged. And so we see how the preacher starts to put this together as he moves from reminding us about the unchanging Jesus in verse 8 to then speaking about rejecting any kind of changing instruction about Jesus in verses 9 to 12. So reject any, any changing instruction about the unchanging Jesus. That's where, that's where he goes next with this. So if you look at verse 9, verse 9, he says, Don't be led astray 
by various kinds of strange teachings. Now, just to get our bearings with the statement for a minute, because the preacher uses some really vivid and interesting language here, it helps us to think through this. Um, that phrase, led astray, that actually translates an interesting word that's used in different places for, for the wind blowing stuff around or the, the current in a river that carries things away. So being led astray is like being swept away, if you like. The, the preacher has in view this kind of this whoosh of energy that comes and carries us off, right? And then the word various, various kinds of teaching. Uh, interestingly, that's a word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak of Joseph's coat of many colors, various colors, lots, lots of different colors put together in the coat. It's also used in Greek literature to describe alloy metals like bronze, where more than one thing goes into the creation of, 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 the, of the metal. Um, so, so it's a word that indicates different parts. And, and, then, and then we have this word strange, which is just a word for foreign or alien. And so, so we, we put all this together, and the preacher's giving quite a descriptive warning in that he's saying, don't be swept away, remember the unchanging Jesus, don't be swept away by teaching that comes with a whole bunch of extra pieces that reflect foreign additions to what's true about the unchanging Jesus. No, 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 don't believe any alloy kind of teaching. Don't believe teaching of many different colors. Jesus is unchanging, remember. Which means that anything alien to the gospel and what's true about him is something that needs to be rejected immediately. We don't want to let any kind of current of different sort of instruction sweep us away from the significant preeminence of Christ. And this, of course, hits right at the center of what's been going on in the church. Because here in the, in the, in the original, in the original uh, listener's experience, they've had teaching come, come in that has pulled them back from the unchanging sufficiency of Jesus, haven't they? As, as people uh, come in and, and they've told them that this old covenant framework for relating to God is sufficient, even as we, even as we think about some of these categories that, the, that, 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 that come through His unchanging yesterday, today, and forever, past sacrifice, present help, future rest, this teaching has come in that the preacher has had to counter in terms of relying on Old Covenant framework for all of those things that only Jesus can supremely accomplish. And it's actually that teaching that the preacher brings up again in verses 10 to 12. If we consider all this together and kind of see where he's going with this, he brings up this strange teaching and quickly counters it again in verses 10 to 12 when he speaks in a figurative way about our altar. If you see that there, in contrast to the altar of sacrifice in the Old Covenant. So in verses 10 to 12, he's hitting on this strange teaching again where he says that this alien gospel has come in and he speaks about eating at this altar, which is something, what are we to make of that? Eating at the altar. What is this in reference to? But it does help to know that eating at the altar is a way that the Old Testament talked about participating in the sacrifices that took place there. But of course, to eat at the altar of the Old Covenant, as he says here, it doesn't give you the right to eat at the altar of Christ's work. In other, words, in other words, you can't participate in old covenant forms of worship and have the salvation benefit that can come only in Christ applied to you. It's not the blood of those animals that could ultimately save anybody, verse 11. It's Jesus' blood that saves in verse 12, which is the point all through Hebrews that he's, that he's been trying to make. So, so you see, the preacher is highlighting the way the wind has been blowing, the way the, the current has been flowing in this congregation where, where teaching with various colors has come in that is not matched up with the unchanging truth about Jesus' superiority. Instead, teachings come in and said that you can be okay without Jesus. Just subtract Him from your life. 
If you do this stuff that the teachers are saying, you'll be okay without Christ. You don't actually need his historical sacrifice. They're saying the old covenant, it can take care of the sacrifice stuff. And you don't need his, his priestly intercession. There's, there's um, provision for that in the old covenant system. You don't need his leadership to reach your eternal rest. Moses is our guy, you know. Minus Jesus is what, is what they're bringing. Go with this stuff over here and you're fine, but it's not fine. Because Jesus is unchanging in his final and climactic exercise of salvation work. So ultimately, like the rest of verse 9 reads here, there's no establishment of grace from those other teachings. You see that? Food regulations, uh, which are mentioned there in verse 9, no doubt a reference back to Leviticus 11 and the food regulations around the, the old covenant system. There must be something that these teachers have been encouraging. But those old practices under the law, they don't actually benefit. They, they can't bring you to God. The preacher says it as plain as can be. Paul says the same thing in Colossians where he says, those kinds of things have no value in mortifying the flesh. They have no way of dealing with our sinful nature, those external regulations. And in fact, it's interesting here, the preacher actually uses the liturgy word again in verse 10. And he talks about how those who think that the old covenant framework is enough, those who worship or liturgize like that, they're the ones who can't participate in the benefits that we have in Christ. There's no genuine worship there. Those ways without Jesus can't open, open up a, a way to God. And so, uh, we think about this, no benefit is back there unless, unless you're back there as the Old Testament saints were who were exemplary, trusting by faith in what God is going to do in terms of His promises. Of course, there's benefit in the trust and in the faith, but ultimately, apart from Christ, all of that is meaningless. So, so this call to reject any teaching that's contrary to the unchanging superiority of Christ, this call is there for us. And while the context of the call to not be led astray has immediate Old Covenant implications for the first audience, there's also some profound wisdom here for us as we think about what this means for us staying our own course of trust in the unchanging truth about Jesus. In fact, we can just think about this for a moment in terms of how far-reaching truths about Jesus that have been expounded in Hebrews really are, especially as they help us discern true teaching from false teaching. We can just have these in our minds. In fact, quite frankly, you can have these in our minds as you measure what's preached here on Sunday. You can have these kinds of things in your mind as you measure the types of books that you're reading. Jesus is unchanging in his superiority. So think about these categories. Let's work this out a little bit. Jesus is unchanging in his superiority. Yesterday, historically, yesterday he was the superior sacrifice. That, that, that's climactic, done. His sacrifice is, is sufficient. Today, he's our superior high priest. Tomorrow, he secures our superior heavenly rest. So let's have those, have those truths in mind. And then it's interesting just to note how they help us discern false teaching. False teaching has a way of working to either add or remove true superior elements from, that aspect, from, from those aspects of Jesus' identity. So, so think this out for a little bit. For example, Jesus is the same yesterday. So, so in order to discern teaching, uh, whether it's to be embraced or rejected, I can ask the question, does the new teaching I'm receiving distract, distort, or deny Jesus' historical sacrifice? And in other words, is this teaching telling me that to be clean, I need less than or more than Jesus' work on the cross? In our current uh, cultural climate, we get this all the time. We're told that, that a pure conscience can be ours if we're what? Well, if we're just true to ourselves. That's where that pure conscience can be found. Live your truth. You know. 
We're told this is how you can really be at peace with yourself and with the world around you, but that's false teaching because it doesn't recognize the superiority of Jesus' historical work on the cross. He's the same yesterday. That cross work that he did, that's what cleanses. That remains the only way to truly be rid of guilt and stand right with the creator of the cosmos. To say Jesus is the same yesterday helps us discern truth from falsehood. Jesus' historical sacrifice stands unchanging as the only way to human wholeness. And most importantly, it stands unchanging as the only way to divine reconciliation. He's the same yesterday. Current teaching must be discerned as true or false based on the immutable truth that He is the only way to cleansing. Jesus is the same yesterday. And He's the same today. How about, how about teaching that comes in and tells me that there are other ways to find sustaining strength and spiritual wholeness for living? Again, culturally, this is very prevalent. But for example, true strength for living, uh, the flourishing life, we're told, True, true strength for that is going to come as maybe I discover what I'm truly passionate about. Right? If I can just nail that down, then a life of energy and wholeness will be found. If I can just structure my life in a way that fits what I want and what I enjoy, then I'll have steady peace and ongoing energy. But that doesn't work, does it? Right? Lives and deaths of people, even like, like Anthony Bourdain, that finding your passion is a false savior. But Jesus is the same today. He is our functioning high priest right now. Whether in days full of joy or sorrow or sickness or health or, or fulfillment or frustration, Jesus is the one through whom we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Any teaching that says you can access persevering power and life-giving spiritual strength by any other means, what is that? That's false teaching. Jesus is the same yesterday, and Jesus is the same today. He lives to intercede for us before God right now, and through Him enduring, persevering, mercies are granted that will allow me to ultimately realize the fullness of new life that Jesus has purchased for me through Him alone. And Jesus is the same forever, yesterday, today, and forever. He's the giver of superior eternal hope. So we can be in conversations and somebody might say, you know, you can be okay forever without Jesus. The, the future, life beyond, you know, it'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. In fact, God, if there even is one, he or she or they, uh, just appreciate you being good, doing your best and so on, that's enough. If there even is an afterlife, it'll be well for the one who tried hard, tried their, their level best at, at being nice, love wins. You don't need the strange Jesus stuff to, to, to be okay about the future if there even is one beyond death. Or maybe the teaching isn't so, so spiritually oriented, uh, but maybe along the political lines as we think about the future. We're struck with this just so daily in the news right now. Future security rests in what? Getting this type of politician in the office. If this party line is kept, if this social framework is sustained, then hope for the future will be ours. I tell you, that one hits a little too close to home for American churches today. A future hope that rests in a better politician or a better or renewed social system, false teaching. Things may get a little better, things may get a little worse, but future hope that's only ultimately found in Jesus, whether we're living in a red state or a blue state or we were just martyred as Christians in Kabul. Future hope is not found in the politics of man. And teaching that says it is, not least of all teaching that shows up in the church and says those things. That teaching is to be rejected vehemently by God's people. Don't be swept away by that. Jesus is the same forever. There is no other ultimate future hope, none. 
doesn't mean we're not engaged in politics. But it does mean our final and future hope is not centered there. So, so you see how this framework and uh, the preacher provides is actually very helpful to us when it comes to discerning truth in terms of what should be accepted and what should be rejected with regard to teaching. Don't be swept away by various kinds of strange teaching. Jesus is the same yesterday. Only His sacrifice makes us clean. Don't, don't, don't engage in any teaching that doesn't match that. Jesus is the same today. Only His high priestly work brings us truly flourishing and persevering grace. Does the teaching match that? Jesus is the same forever. He's the only one who secures a future hope that never fades. Does the teaching match that? Anything to the contrary is an alloy. It's it's pieced together material. It's not the jewel of the gospel. So so the, the liturgical life and avoiding strange teaching, the preacher reminds us we have to have in our minds the unchanging Jesus and then with that in our minds he directs us to reject any kind of strange instruction that doesn't correspond with it. That stuff has to go. And then lastly, the preacher tells us to bear present disgrace as he works through these things. He doesn't only remind us of the unchanging Jesus and then then direct us to reject anything that's contrary to that. He also calls the congregation then to, to, to bear present disgrace. Um, which at first seems like a little bit of a, a, of a jump there in, in verses 13 to 16. Why does he bring this up right here? But then as we think about it a little more, we recognize the great temptation that false teaching often brings is current acceptance. That, that's that's the, the shininess of it, is current acceptance. And that's a big reason why all the people have all the flags and signs up in the yard in the neighborhood. I want you all to know you can accept me. I'm like you, please like me. Right? Acceptance is a strong pull. For the first audience of Hebrews, that was a very real temptation. To identify with historical Judaism instead of with Jesus would allow them to be accepted in Greco-Roman society. And the temptation came with that minus Jesus kind of teaching. Just to go back uh, from Jesus, you'll be fine under the Mosaic law. You'll actually find social relief as a result. So no more jail time, no more confiscation of property. Just go back. The great temptation of false teaching is always current acceptance. But the preacher says, as gospel people... We do not serve the Jesus of cultural acceptance. We serve, as the poem goes, we serve the Jesus of the scars. We serve the Jesus who was not accepted, but instead rejected by so many. And the preacher references this in the last section in verses 9 to 12, where he's doing his biblical theology there and putting things together about how Jesus is ultimately the better sacrifice. And there he's talking about bulls being sacrificed on the Day of Atonement. And those animals, after they were sacrificed on the altar, they would be taken outside the camp of Israel and burned um, after, after the, uh, the, the sacrifice was complete. Because outside the camp, outside the city, was the place of, of uncleanness and shame and those kinds of things in the Old Covenant framework. And then look at Jesus. He, he was the climactic day of atonement sacrifice. And his shameful crucifixion even depicted that as he was taken outside the city of Jerusalem. He was taken to Golgotha, remember the place of the skull. Outside the city, John tells us in his gospel very purposefully. He was disgraced outside the camp, so to speak. And now, the preacher is saying, that place of shame, it's actually become a place to pursue for the one who's following Jesus. To, to, to be in the camp, which is equated in verse 14 here with the, the temporary city of the world. To be in the camp, figuratively speaking, is to be in the city of humanity. 
and, and to find acceptance here and, and a place of peace here, to be in the place of, of fallen humanity who's so elevated in their hubris. The preacher is saying this is not the place for us. Where do we go? Well, we go to the place not of worldly acceptance, but the place of disgrace with Jesus in verse 13. We take up our cross, we go out to Him. We're not going to be those who embrace the strange teaching of the world, which would no doubt guarantee our acceptance here in the realm of fallen humanity. We don't, we don't, we don't embrace what's contrary to Christ. Instead, we're prepared to bear the outcastness and the, and the marginalization and the ostracization and shame that comes from being identified with Jesus. And we do so because the city here, the world as we know it, is not the final city. Thank God for that. In fact, the preacher's already said at the end of chapter 12, the world as it is, far from Christ set against him, it's, it's the shakable city. It's the city that's one day going to come crumbling down, the world as it is. But in Christ, we come to the one who brings us, eventually, to the enduring city. That heavenly reality of a new creation. Verse 14 speaks about it there. But we come to this true promised land of rest, as Hebrews has depicted it, where tears and sorrow, sickness, all wrongs are gone forever. We bear present shame because we serve the Savior who died outside the camp. He endured the shame. We follow in His way in this life, disgraced because of our unchanging belief in the unchanging Savior. And as we do so, we're fixing our eyes, we're setting our gaze on the fact that a future home is guaranteed for us by the very Savior who's been disgraced by this world. We're going out to Him. Disgrace now matters not. Because we're going out to the one who's ultimately going to bring us into the reality of a heavenly new creation because of all that He was, is, and evermore will be. So we go outside the camp to Jesus. Not by actually leaving the place we're in. This isn't a call to move to rural Oregon. But we live our life as those outside the camp by doing exactly what the preacher has been calling us to do all along. How do we do this? Well, we live this liturgical life. This is how we go to Jesus outside the camp, living this life of worship. Just think about the things he's talked about here. The sexual ethic and marriage. How contrary is that to the way around us as we're seeking to pursue Christ in faithfulness? The way we use our money for others and not just ourselves. How contrary is that to the way of, of the world so often presented around us? All of these kinds of things. And ultimately, as, as verse 15 tells us here, this going outside the camp, living this liturgical life as we follow Jesus, looks like lips that confess Christ as the unchanging superior son. And it also looks like lives marked by doing good and sharing what we have with others, verse 16. Why? Because these sacrifices please the Lord. This is what Jesus has saved us for. This is how we go outside the camp to Him, persevering in the way that Jesus has purified us to engage in, in a way that ultimately brings a smile to the face of the God who planned our salvation. Jesus is the one who purchased that for us yesterday on the cross. And now presently he gives us strength to continue to walk in this, come what may, the disparaging, whatever it might be, he gives us the strength to currently walk in this and then looking forward to the future. Well, we know it's Jesus of the future that has prepared a home of everlasting rest for us. So we have this Jesus Christ of yesterday, today, and forever. And with him, what do we do? We worship. We live these lives of worship, loving others faithfully and perseveringly exercising love in our marriages, exercising sexual fidelity, stewarding our money, imitating our leaders, and on and on it goes. All these things he's been speaking about, which are just a sample set of the totality of our lives, of what it means now to live as Christ's people. Because 
He's the one who ultimately brings us unchanging life. And we see in all this, what, what, what is happening to us in the course of all this? Are we being shaken? Are we ultimately finding ourselves in this unstable, shaky place where, where, the, where, where the concerns of life are going to overwhelm us and ultimately bring us down? No, what does is, what is verse 9 tell us? Verse 9 tells us we're actually established. We're strengthened in grace. We're not shaken. We're not crumbling down. Though it may look like that to the world around us. Instead, we're actually established uh, in the unshakable grace of Jesus Christ's persevering life. And in that is a great deal of hope. And this is enough for us to persevere. In this, we find the truth that sustains us, though the times may be changing around us. And so we listen well to this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teaching, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, may our hearts be established by grace. May the unchanging truth about Christ be what compels us in our daily lives as we think historically about His work, as we think presently about His promise help for us, and then as we look to the future that He's secured climactically for us. May we be perseverers who trust exclusively in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We need your help for this. We need your help to declare this and live this out as you call us to. So help us to this end. May we honor you in this way, Lord Jesus. Amen.